0: The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airways. And welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who really is who he says he is, and not the evil witch Cora from Once Upon a Time, my co-host...
1: Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, with Fringe off for two weeks due to the baseball playoffs and go on preempted for the presidential debate, we're going to be dropping those shows from the discussion and focusing on Once Upon a Time, Castle, Alphas, Modern Family, Supernatural, The Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest. Then we're going to have our Airways Rundown section featuring our thoughts on Revolution, Last Resort, New Girl, Sons of Anarchy, and much more.
0: Including Arrow.
1: Including Arrow.
0: (laughs) But before we get into all of that, we have everyone's favorite section, News with Nico.
1: Community returns on October 19th. But wait, you might be saying, Nico, that was last Friday and I didn't see Community on my schedule and my DVR didn't record it. I'll let Troy and Abed explain it to you in this video linked to to in our ACC feed or on our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages. But essentially, they explain that October 19th isn't just a date on the calendar, it's a state of mind. Thus, community will be returning at some point, and when it does, then it will be October 19th in our hearts. Just watch the video already, and you'll understand. Man, I love this show.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Family Guy celebrates its 200th episode. Freaking sweet! Family Guy is commemorating its 200th episode with a one-hour event, including its milestone episode, as well as a tribute to the Emmy Award-winning animated series. The event will kick off with the episode entitled Yug Yelimeth," which is Family Guy Backwards in which Brian abuses Stewie's time machine, causing reality to run in reverse. As a result, they have to work together to set things right before Stewie is unborn. Then, oh. in the Family Guy retrospective, the end of the world as we know it, fans will get a behind-the-scenes look at some of the show's most memorable moments, featuring interviews with series creator Seth MacFarlane and voice actors Mila Kunis, Alex Bornstein, and Seth M- and Seth Green.
0: I'm kind of looking forward to that second half. Yeah. Of so to the episode.
1: Yeah, it's going to be actually pretty cool. And if you want more information, of course, you can always find more on the article I linked to on our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages.
0: So is it going to be like a crossover now between American Dad, Family Guy, and Ted?
1: <laughs> Possibly.
0: Maybe throwing will throw in a little Flash Gordon for us, too.
1: TNT gives a series order to Frank Darabont's L.A. Noir project. Oh. After shooting the pilot this past spring, TNT has officially ordered the new series from Frank Darabont based on the novel L.A. Noir, The Struggle for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City. The press release pointedly does not give a specific title for the series as of yet, Perhaps they are still debating whether they want to simply use LA Noir or are concerned about confusion with the LA Noir video game. TNT has ordered six episodes of the series set in the 1940s and 50s, which stars Darabont's Walking Dead actor John Bernthal as Joe Teague, an ex-Marine now working as an LAPD cop in an era rampant with police corruption. Another Darabont pal, Jeffrey DeMunn, the Walking Dead's Dale and Shawshank Redemption actor, plays Detective Hal Hal Morrison. He heads up the LAPD's new mob squad, and Jeremy Strong from The Happening in Lincoln uh, will be playing Mike, uh, Detective Mike Hendry. And this is going to be uh, a pretty good series, guys. If you want more details about all the people who are in it, anything a little more in-depth than I can go into here, check out the article from IGN on our Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus pages is really worth it reading because it really does talk a little bit more in depth about what the series is about and who all the major players are. So go ahead and check that out.
0: And this is different from the video game, right?
1: I believe so, yes. Okay. The video game was based on the same novel, so there will be overlap.
0: Okay. But it
1: is, it's is—it's not going to be just a TV version of the game that you played. It's going to right. delve deeper into that material and maybe tell a different story.
0: But it'll be enough to probably get that game audience interested in it.
1: Exactly. Like,
0: okay, cool. Looking forward to it.
1: Brace yourselves. More Twilight crap is coming. Oh, Lord. Lionsgate and Summit planning on a Twilight TV series or a film spin off. Oh. A, a new take on the popular an equally craptastic vampire and werewolf movie series is in development, and one idea circulating is a TV show reports, uh, or uh, IGN reports. Potential avenues include a TV show or or film spinoff merely set in the same world as the one in the movies, but not featuring the main trio. No doubt they'll want to get the ball rolling on this new project ASAP, before the hype settles and people come to their senses about that, what utter crap this stuff is. If you need more information, I don't know why you would. But you can find it on IGN or on our Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus pages.
0: I don't even want to put a link to the ACC feed.
1: <laughs> Animal practice canceled by NBC. Oh. Falling Made in Jersey being yanked by CBS last week plus NBC killing Dane Cook's new series before it even aired, we have our next cancellation of the fall TV season as NBC is pulling animal practice from the air. The struggling comedy, which had sunk to a new ratings low this week, will be replaced as of November 14th by Whitney returning for its second season. This comes on the heels of NBC's last-minute decision to not debut Whitney and Community this Friday, as originally scheduled, as it became more likely they would instead use those series to fill in the gaps in the future on other nights. Still no word on Community's return, other than what I already mentioned before, but we'll keep you up to date on that.
0: Uh, Whitney is not that much of an impressive replacement for animal practice, but okay.
1: Yeah, the guys over at IGN were not psyched about that.
0: <laughs> Should be community there, but okay. And that poor guy, Tyler Labine, that actor, he can't catch a break. I tell you.
1: Yeah. Brendan Fraser to headline TNT pilot Legends. Interesting. Brendan Fraser is headed to the small screen as the star of TNT's Legends, a drama pilot from Homeland, Homeland's Howard Gordon. The mummy actor will play a conflicted undercover agent who has an uncanny ability to transform himself into a different person for each job. The project is based on a book by master spy novelist, Robert Little.
0: Kind of sounds a little like quantum weep <laughs> slightly,
1: <laughs> a little less sci-fi. I think Yeah.
0: the spy version of quantum leap
1: in our final news story. It's an op-ed piece about why the new Nielsen ratings might be viewers biggest hope for the future. There's a great article on tv.com about the broken system that is the Nielsen rating system. It discusses the fact that there are only 25 to 30,000 Nielsen families in the US, which is about 0.02% of the TV watching population, which is woefully inadequate for a true sample size. It's a flawed, damn near broken system, and it's not just frustrating – it's not just frustrated viewers who recognize it. In recent years, various media entities have called for alternatives. Family Guy, as you may remember from my rundown review last week, just did an episode lampooning the Nielsen system and how terrible it is and how it is ruining television. If this is something that interests you, and really, as an avid TV watcher, it should, then head over to our Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus pages and read this article. It's both fascinating and informative. So really, guys, check this out.
0: Yeah, basically the Nielsen system is really, really outdated. Yes. So this might be the answer to a lot of the problems that's been going on. This might make things easier on fan groups that try to save their favorite shows.
1: Yeah, I think we need a new system because media is consumed in a wholly different way than what it was when the Nielsen system went into effect. And they've been unable or unwilling to adapt to the the way people watch their media now. So and it really – it's stupid that we're still using it. And if they were willing to adapt and change with the times, then I'd say go for it, keep it. But they have proved that they are unwilling to do that, and thus I think it's time to scrap it completely and start over.
0: Yeah, and that's why we're in these situations with fridge going off, and what happened over the weekend with uh, DC Nation on Cartoon Network and things like that. Uh, exactly. So problems would avoid those issues from going on, could make a lot less headaches for a lot of people in the industry as well as the fans. Right. So with that, we're gonna move on to talking about a show who's doing moderately well to the Nielsen ratings for their second season. And that's once upon a time with the episode Lady of the Lake.
1: Emma and Mary Margaret join forces with Aurora, Mulan, and Lancelot to find a way back to Storybrooke. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale world, King George poisons Snow White and Charming must go to the Lady of the Lake for a cure.
0: This week's episode of Once Upon a Time had just as much action as the season finale, with the show's first attempt at using the fairy tale world of the past to push forward the fairy tale world of the present, featuring Snow White taking down a full-blown CGI ogre and fight scenes galore. In fact, the scene with the ogre seemed to be one of the biggest highlights for the audience from the episode because there were an avalanche of tweets during the show calling Snow a badass. Nico, what did you think of the action and the special effects for the ogre in this episode?
1: Yeah, Dan, the action had purpose in this episode. Yes, it was. It was great to see Snow kick ass and take some names, but that badassery had a purpose, and that purpose was to focus our attention on the Snow and Emma relationship, and especially on the change in dynamic now that they are in a fairy tale world. Snow is long no longer the meek school teacher, she's a fighter, a protector. She's the strong one now. This change in dynamic initially throws Emma, as she doesn't really know how to function in a world where all her skills. Weapons and life experiences mean nothing, nor does she know how to react to Snow's newfound confidence and seemingly her change of character. Dan, this great fight with the ogre, which seemingly, while seemingly short and not exceedingly heavy on action compared to, say, the Avengers or a super, any superhero movie, was exactly what was needed here in this scene. The action progressed the story and was not merely there for the adrenaline rush, and that made this a great action scene. The CGI was not bad either. It was great for TV, though I think the dragon was cooler last season.
0: Yeah, and the thing you have to think about there is that was a season finale episode. Exactly. I mean, you've got to bring it all with the finale. This was episode two of – or episode three of – you know, the second season. So right. And that, I got the pullback there. Yeah, that's
1: why I say it was not bad and actually pretty great for TV.
0: Right, exactly. And hopefully, as this show continues to achieve success, we'll get some big strides in terms of those effects and whatnot. Now, going into the flashbacks that took place in this episode, I knew once she got shot by the arrow, Prince Charming's mother was going to sacrifice the last drop of healing water from the lake for Snow to have a child. But the actors' excellent performances still made this predictable story tug at the heartstrings in a way that helped us along with Emma and present day understand that Snow abandoning her as a baby was about putting her child first, just like the sacrifice Charming's mother made in this episode. And I also liked how the writers attempted to keep us guessing how Snow was going to be able to bear a child with making it look like Charming's mother drank the last sip of healing water, even though it was obvious to us she faked it. However, the creative Holy Grail reference of putting the water in the wine stone drink during her wedding ceremony really made me like Lancelot as a character based on his nobility, and I was disappointed to discover during the present-day storyline that he was killed by Cora
1: yeah, Dan, that that kind of disappointed me as well. But I think we will still get some more flashbacks of him and as Snow and Emma continue through the fairy tale world. yeah, I, well, hopefully we do because this was a good storyline, and I like the friendship here between Snow and Lancelot that we saw in the flashbacks. I think that's really great. So if they continue those flashbacks and we see him still, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. And I think they will too. And I was disappointed that we weren't going to actually get to see him here helping her in the fairy tale world.
0: Right. Now, is it possible he could still be alive somehow?
1: It's always possible. It's a fairy tale world. Right, (laughs) exactly. But I think he's dead.
0: Now, the story with, you know, the mother sacrificing the last drop of water and stuff, was that predictable to you?
1: You know, it was, but it still had a. Still, it was satisfying still, you know. That's Even funny. though we, we knew it was coming, it, it still was okay. We were okay
0: with it. Right. And uh, speaking of Cora, she really definitely lived up to our predictions of being this show's big bad. But we were wrong on her acting as an unlikely ally to Emma and Snow until they got back to Storybrooke, where she would turn on them to take over the real world. Again, the way Cora used Snow and Emma, to lead her to the wardrobe, was just as sinister. And frankly, they had to go this route because it would have made Snow look like an idiot, to trust her. And it really would have defeated the whole point of this episode, like you mentioned before, with her, battling the ogre and Snow now becoming, the strong one. Right. And at the same time, I was a little disappointed, that the fight with Cora destroyed the wardrobe, because Mulan asking Snow, to be the fairy tale. Refugee's leader maybe feel like Snow and Abba are going to be there until at least mid-season, maybe longer. And I don't want to wait that long to see them uh, react to Regina's path to redemption or Regina face her incredibly frightening mother again. I want to go there. I want to see this happen.
1: Yeah, me too, Dan. I'm hoping that it doesn't last that that long. I'm okay with it lasting a little bit longer than it is you know, where we are right now. They don't need to go back next episode or the one after that, but pretty soon I would like them to be at least making headway towards getting home.
0: Exactly. I agree with that. But, I mean, on the flip side, this developing mother-daughter relationship between Snow and Emma, I thought, is working pretty well. So maybe the writers should just really keep them in the fairy tale world to run with it for a while. Because I was thinking, you know, Emma becoming appreciative of her parents' sacrifice, creating a sense of anguish and snow for being unable to see her little girl grow up is intriguing to me. I mean, really, this conflict of a character meeting their child all grown up when they were just a baby yesterday is something I felt was kind of new to sci-fi fantasy shows, beginning with Doctor Who, which I felt dealt with it wonderfully. And now the concept seems to be trickling down into this show along with Fridge on Friday night and I really can't wait to see how the imaginative writers behind both of these shows are going to play with this idea in their sandboxes that they have. So Nico, what do you think of this conflict of a character meeting their child all grown up when they were just a baby the day before? Is it something you're intrigued with or do you like the idea or what's your thoughts on it?
1: Dan, this dynamic is going to be at the heart of this season, and for good reason. If you'd asked me three years ago if I thought this story could work, I would have said maybe. But with the River Song story arc in Doctor Who, the Edda story arc in Fringe, and now Emma in Once Upon a Time, I have to say that this sort of story obviously works. However, unlike River Song and Edda. We, have, we as the audience were groomed here on Once Upon a Time to expect this story. We knew before the characters knew, and thus we've been expecting this story for quite a few episodes. Like I said before, this is going to be the main storyline for Snow and Emma going forward this season, and I look forward to the character development this new dynamic in their relationship will allow. Once Upon a Time is a family show, and being so, it emphasizes that importance of family. So this is going to give them a lot of opportunities to show family. Losing the ability to have children is a devastating issue that many couples face today. And a few people on Twitter I saw were really turned off by the emphasis on not having children or having children of your own could cause unsufferable or insufferable misery. Many people have families through adoption or surrogacy, but I think that this plot point was used to emphasize the loss of Emma's childhood and how much Snow missed out on not being there for her when she was a child and how much Snow wanted to be a good mother to her and how much Regina slash the Evil Queens cursed robbed Snow. I also think... We will see Snow and Emma bond even more over the fact that they both missed out on the early years of their kids' lives and how much they regret not being there for their kids. So I think now that they're together in this story world and they're almost the same age, right. they're almost the same age, you know, and they have similar things. They both essentially abandoned their children for what they thought was better for their children. And now they are reunited with their children. Henry's much younger than Emma was when Snow was reunited with her. But still, they're going through the very same thing. And that will allow them to have a strong relationship despite the fact that Emma – or Snow missed out on Emma's entire childhood. Yeah. And so I like this.
0: Well, it's a a mother-daughter relationship we haven't really seen before exactly With Them being so close in age, they have the same kind of frustrations and issues and to see them at the same point. It's weird. It's like, they're almost like sisters, but one has to show more seniority over the other one as it's snow. Yeah.
1: It's funny because the actress who plays Emma is actually older than the actress who plays snow oh, yeah. in real life. So that, that's always funny.
0: Yeah, and going on with his family or character interactions, I really love seeing Henry take matters into his own hands in this episode. As it really reminded us, like, what an entertaining character he is to watch for just simply being wise beyond his ears. And he kind of did this in that whole scene where he convinced Jefferson, or the Mad Hatter, if you want to call him that, to reunite with his daughter. And Henry's resourcefulness in this episode as well just made him this character and he he was this way through all of entire last season but you just can't help but root for the kid especially the scenes where he uh, tricked Regina into meeting him for lunch so he could sneak into her vault that was awesome and pretty slick and again it was wrong for him to sneak off on his own and lie and some of that stuff but the fact the kid came up with that that's pretty cool and at the same time Prince Charming's interactions with Henry in this episode And teaching Henry the lesson that there's some things he shouldn't do alone really began to make their relationship rival Henry's relationship with Emma in my book. I can accept Emma not being there more so because Charming's relationship with Henry is coming off so strong. Also, that scene at the end where Charming gave Henry a wooden sword to teach him how to fight really brought a huge smile to my face. As I absolutely can't get enough of scenes where a heroic character mentors or inspires kids. Although the way this scene ended with the real world version of the king watching Charmy teach Henry the art of sword fighting makes me wonder how he's going to fit into things. And if he'll end up becoming an enemy or an ally.
1: I love that scene where they, they were sword fighting too, Dan, at the end. That was great. I thought that was that really solidified his change of of thinking, you know, and really deciding, right. I need to bring Henry into whatever we're doing. I can't just think I'm going to do this all myself. I need him just as much as he needs me. That was great. And, you know, I think the king is actually going to be an ally. I think so too. I think he's going to be there and I think he's going to try and be a, a father figure to David/slash Charming.
0: That, that he to
1: that he never was, and I think when Korra returns, that that's going to also be the impetus that starts it,
0: okay. That's interesting. Or
1: or gives him the courage to do it because maybe he tried or wants to be more of a, you know an ally and and wants to be like a father to him, but he just could never could never get beyond his pride to ask for forgiveness or to beg or to try and. Make up, make amends for all the terrible things he had done.
0: Because it was clear, I mean, he made it very clear in the scene we got with him in the fairy tale world that he was lonely. Yes, and that kind of remorse we almost felt for him, I think, will play a big part in us accepting that. But all in all, with this episode, this episode made good steps forward in improving upon the Snow and Charming character. Mm-hmm. Now that the fairy tale versions of them have come together with their real world version. They're much stronger characters and we can see them lasting for much longer. And we're not thoroughly annoyed with them like we were at the end of last season. Right. So I think they've avoided that issue. They're past it now. they fixed it. And I mean, here we go for more episodes. And I'm going to say I can't wait for next week's episode where we get the first appearance of Captain Hook who I really think is going to be another one of the show's big bads. So and that was kind of based on footage showed at comic-con of him ravaging mr gold's shop and for me peter pan was my, one of my favorite stories as a kid Got to even dressed up as him for halloween so i'm excited for this show's interpretation of good old captain hook got to see how he fits in with the fairy tale characters especially rebel skilled because it seems that they have a bit of a rivalry at least that's the way the trailer made it seem
1: I agree. Peter Pan was always a family favorite movie and definitely favorite, one of our favorite rides at Disney World. And I can't wait to see Captain Hook brought to life on one of our favorite TV shows. So I'm, I'm excited for next week as well.
0: And just so you know, I wasn't, I'm not going to be Peter Pan this year. Because I don't want anybody like fans like, oh, Dan was Peter Pan last year? What's that about? No, no, no. That was when I was a kid. Just want to clarify. Nice. And since you need to know about that, that's a great way to move it to the title of this week's Alphas, which was called Need to Know. Like me. Like
1: me. Yeah, while Rosen interrogates an Alpha prisoner, Gary and Bill try to rescue Skylar from Parish.
0: This week's episode of Alphas, with the way that we thought it would for the most part, with Dr. Rosen's thirst for revenge, causing him to lose his way. Because he, Hicks, Rachel, and Nina went rogue to capture Stan Parrish's right-hand man, the fire-throwing guy, Scipio, and perform an interrogation on the villain that really became more and more inhumane as it went on. Now, it made sense for Dr. Rosen and Hicks to be at the interrogation because they both had loved Danny and were willing to do anything to avenge her death as we saw at the end of last week's episode. But I was surprised to see Rachel and Nina here. First off, I can't believe Rachel went rogue because her boyfriend is the head of Alpha's government tech team. And second, after everything Nina went through at the beginning of the season with losing her own way, I would think she would see that Dr. Rosen is now going through the same thing that she was earlier this season of, of kind of going rogue or going off the straight and narrow path and act as a voice of reason. So, I mean, Nico, what, what is your thoughts? I mean, should they have been there?
1: Ah, uh, no. Okay.
0: <laughs> that's fine.
1: No, I don't think that they should have been. Um, I'll, I'll, you got another question for me in a second. Now I'll, I'll, I might tie that in there as well.
0: Okay. All right. That's, that's fine. Again, I personally think that Rachel blowing the whistle on Dr. Rosen to Bill when she thought the interrogation became too extreme was another case of the writers not knowing what to do with Rachel's character. I mean, I think we said this the past couple weeks. Her plot lines have kind of been pointless. Yeah. And here, I mean, yes, she is more squeamish than the other characters, which makes sense why she had a problem with Scipio being made to burn his own skin. But it would have been more interesting if Hicks realized that revenge was not what Danny wanted. Nina re- tried to return the favor for Dr. Rosen helping her get back on track. As these were plot lines that have, that have been built up over the past couple episodes and were more interesting while Rachel was basically off taking part in those pointless story arcs about her sleeping with Jot. So Nico, what did you think of Dr. Rosen descending to the point where he was willing to torture Sepio. And were you surprised to see Rachel and Nina involved in this interrogation? I know you didn't think they should be there, but was this also a surprise to you?
1: Yeah, Dan. Um, And all I could think of when I was seeing Nina there was so much for the idea we had last week of Nina being that moral compass as she was very much complicit in the revenge plot that Hicks and Rosen hatched up this week. She was integral to their the initial attempts to get to this uh, Scipio character. I was disappointed by this black backslide on Nina's part and felt that it was erasing all the good she'd done or we'd seen her do since her return to the team. Of course, it was no surprise that Rachel was the one that ratted Hicks and Rosen out to bill, but at least she didn't call in the TAC team against her own team. That would have been,
0: yeah.
1: that would have been too far. It is apparent, Dan, that Rosen was dead set on maybe a murder-suicide sort of path in this episode as he turned his back on essentially everything he believes in to get revenge on Stanton Parish for the murder of Danny and stop him from doing anything worse to the entire human race. We saw in the scene – we saw this in the scene with Hicks in Parrish's office at the stadium or convention center or whatever it was, that he essentially said goodbye to Hicks in that scene and did not expect to survive his encounter with Stanish Parrish. So it was kind of weird to see that coming from Dr. Rosen.
0: Yeah. I mean it seems like he's so angry about what happened he's not even realizing what he's doing.
1: Exactly.
0: And that's where I thought that they were setting that up for Nina to kind of knock him, some sense into him. Because of what happened last week and the argument they had and stuff. Right. So it was like the writer didn't watch last week's episode <laughs> or know what the script was because they threw that out the window. Right. And I don't know if they were there because they're not as popular characters.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's that.
0: I know. I just I feel like there's such a big following for Gary and Bill and Kat that they want to do plot lines with them and plot lines with that stuff. And then Dr. Rosen, I think he's a big character as well. And they were more going for development with those characters and giving them time than the other ones that are less important, I think, to the fans. I don't know. I'm not sure. And then, you know, you had to make sure you had enough time make the fans of uh, Summer Glau happy and get Sean Astin time because he's a big actor for them to have. And I, I don't know if I just I feel like some of this stuff was dropped on continuing the plot lines to make everyone happy and fulfill all the guest star spots.
1: That's obviously a possibility. Um, I don't know if it was intentional or it right. just it happened that way.
0: Right, and th- and that's my opinion. I mean, everyone's entitled to think their own thing, but that's what I was feeling. Um, but speaking of you know characters like Bill, I really liked how he was used as the character to remain on the virtuous path. As Kat said in this episode, it sucked that Dr. Rosen went behind his back and played him like a fool. But I've got to give Bill props for not letting this get him rattled. Okay, going with Gary's suggestion to save Skylar, as that was probably the best chance they had at stopping Stan Parrish's attack. Also, I thought it was a good decision for Bill not to detain Rachel and Nina because he needed all the help he could get. Got his action in this moment made me feel like Bill is going to be one of the big heroes in stopping Parrish's attack as he's going to act as a team leader with Rosen's shot. And it's possible Bill's going to stay in this role because I think Rosen is going to leave the team at the end of the season possibly over a guilty conscience created by his actions for the past few episodes. <laughs> so Nico, did you agree with the decisions Bill made in this episode? And do you think I'm going so with my theory that he will be the big hero a leader in stopping Paris's attack. I mean, Bill seems like a character really who's come a long way from his anger management issues back in season one. Do you think he's ready to take on this kind of thing?
1: Absolutely, Dan. In, in the pilot, you almost expect Bill to be the main character right. because we see he he's one of the first ones we're introduced to, and and we see that he has come so far from then. He almost kills himself in that episode from from his amping up and now he's learned to control that he's kind of gone Zen master. He kind of has a better idea of what's going on and who he is and how he fits into the scheme of things. He's very much more that same character Lee Rosen was in the very beginning, very cool, confident, and really rational. In his decision-making. So the decisions he made in this episode were very good. They were logical. They made sense for the situation he was put in. Does he want to get... Should he have... Or could he have uh, arrested Nina and Rachel? Absolutely. Should he have? Absolutely not. And that's why he did not. He needed them. He needed their abilities. He needed their insight into what was going on. If... If, at the end, when, once they stop, Stanton Parish will he punish them? Will he, you know, somehow make them atone for what they did? Probably, and he will, but he won't get the law involved. I don't think he will handle it internally, and he's will not going to put
0: him in Building Seven, kind of thing. Right?
1: No, he. Right. That that's ridiculous. But yeah. So, and as for your idea that he's going to be something or somewhere in the stopping. Parrish's attack. Absolutely. He is going to lead the team. He's going to be the reason that the team is in the right position to make what eventually stops the attack from going worldwide or, or from happening. We don't know how it's going to, whether it's going to be a local attack, whether it's going to be a worldwide attack, but they're going to stop part of that attack, hopefully. And Bill's going to be instrumental in getting the right people to the right situations and the right spots to do what they can do. And I think that was, I think, yeah, Bill was, he was on his a game in this episode.
0: Exactly. Meanwhile, even though it was cool to see a live action version of the X-Men villain mastermind in this episode that I'll admit kind of made me dizzy from the camera (laughs) angles. I thought the plot line with the Alpha holding Skylar and her daughter hostage through creating illusions in their mind was a little pointless. In fact, I felt these scenes were really just used to give Summer Glau enough time on screen to make her guest spot of this episode worthwhile for her to want to come back to the show because she was really only needed in the end of this episode where she explained to the Alpha's team how Stan Parrish's attack is going to be set into motion by the devices he planted all over the world. However, I'm expecting some good seeds out of Summer Cloud next week because she helps the al- Alpha stop Stan Parrish's attack. I also felt a little short-changed on Sean Astin's appearance in this episode as Mitchell, but I have a feeling the scene where Mitchell told Stan Parrish that Dr. Rosen made his head feel clear for the first time in a long time is going to play a big part in a crackpot theory I have for next week's episode, which I'll get to after I ask Nico what you thought of the guest appearances.
1: Dan, as I mentioned last time, I really enjoyed the Skylar character. And I agree with you that I think she will be instrumental in the Alpha Teen's attempt to stop Stanton Parish next week in the finale. I think she will feel a sense of responsibility for the devices she designed and being used to spark the war between humans and alphas, and she will do everything she can to stop Parrish. She will also be motivated by revenge as well to get back at Stanton Parrish for kidnapping her and her daughter and putting them under the powers of the Dream World Alpha from this episode. I really liked his ability, though. I knew it was a dream world or illusion of some sort from essentially the beginning, but I still liked it. I thought it actually worked. I know you weren't a huge of a fan or you said that you thought it was sort of, um, filler or a a waste of time. And really essentially she was just needed for the end. But I think it set up for her to be motivated by revenge next week and that's why i think it was successful nonetheless it was great guest spot by summer Glau, and i'm hoping that we have not seen the last of sean aston's sean astin's mitchell because i do really like him and i really liked the mitchell character i think they could have done so much more with him so i really hope he's not just gone in the finale
0: yeah i agree with that um sci-fi channel didn't advertise it be the next episode
1: that's too bad.
0: I, I think he's going to pop up in the next episode, in my opinion.
1: We can hope so, right? I thought
0: he was set up for three episodes.
1: <laughs> you know, I I know that he was in two. I know for sure he, yeah, was, he was in two, show. but I, oh, I mean, I I knew that he was set to be in two, but I don't know about the third.
0: Okay, all right. And, and the other thing is still possible; he could come, up, come back, in season three as well.
1: He, for sure.
0: So there's there's still that possibility. I don't think it's the last we've seen of Mitchell. And in terms of Summer Glau's character, Skylar, <laughs> I think her really good scenes are going to come out of her dealing with, like you said, her guilt over creating the device. And I think that's where we're really going to get her great moments. Again, I liked her guest star spot better than in the Alpha Towns episode. I know I kind of gave some grief to that, her that episode. Right. But I, I appreciated her here, and I, I appreciate the show bringing her back and trying Trying to use her character. And I think there are some good things to come from her. Okay. Finally, as I watched Dr. Rosen's actions in this episode. Pull him away from the path of good. To fuel his thirst for revenge. I felt something needed to happen to Rosen. Because it means of creating retribution. Or balancing the scales. That teaches him about his. Inhumane treatment of Scipio. In the end we got this moment. Where Dr. Rosen was shot. While trying to go after Parrish. Meaning it's pretty obvious that the pain of this experience is going to teach Rosen the error of his ways. But I'm going to take this a step farther by saying that Mitchell is going to show up to get him help, which is why I think we'll see him again. And I think through a combination of Mitchell still helping Rosen, despite being sent to Building 7, and Mitchell's powers allowing him to see his past memories of Danny, Rosen will come to the realization that his current course of action is wrong. Also for the season finale, I'm going to make the prediction that the Alphas team is going to prevent Stanton Parish's attack from spreading worldwide. But I think it's still going to cause enough chaos to point the relationship between humans and alphas in a violent direction. So Nico, do you think Rosenbead shot will show him the errors of his ways? And do you have any predictions for the season finale?
1: Rosen being shot was okay because he's going to survive the gunshot. Right. It would have happened in the finale if he was going to die, or we were supposed to debate over the time between seasons whether or not he would die or not. It would have happened in the finale. As it happened in the penultimate episode, we can assume he will survive. And yeah, I do think it will give him some perspective on what he has been doing since Danny's death and how unnatural or uncharacteristic his actions and thought processes have become. So I do think we will be differently Rosen after he recovers from his non-fatal gunshot. Dan, this season finale, and I hope it is only a season finale because Alphas has yet to be renewed for season three. And it would be a shame if this show got cut short. But this season finale will be huge. I think we will get that final showdown between Stanton Parish and the Alpha team. But will Rosen be there for the final showdown since he was shot in this episode? Yeah, I think he will be there, but maybe in a weakened state. Regardless, I think this will be the final episode of the Stanton Parish story arc, and there will be an epic showdown worthy of such a great villain. And I like your theory that the team will prevent Parish's plan from going worldwide, but that they may be unsuccessful in stopping it completely, and that has and that what does happen will blow the lid off the Alpha's existence like at the end of the first season with Rosen's declaration, but this time there will not be the ability of a cover-up and the public will turn very anti-mutant, I mean anti-Alpha. We could see the mutant or Alpha Registration Act sort of story arc from the X-Men and maybe even see mandatory chipping of all Alphas involved in this registration. That could be an interesting story arc if the show gets picked up for another season. Otherwise, ending the Stanton Parish story arc is a big way, and that could be a good enough for a series finale.
0: Yeah, that's a good statement. I think the chances of this show getting renewed for a season three is going to depend on the success of the finale.
1: That's a fair assessment.
0: And if it blows the lid off the alpha situation like you just said, I think we'll get a season three. Okay. If it doesn't pack that punch if it kind of duds, which uh, it's been a little weak the past couple weeks, they might be in a little bit of trouble, but I am. Okay. I think they're building up to something big. Cause I think it's going to be rock solid. So I have optimistic thoughts about the episode, but we'll see next week when we talk about it. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about a show. That's pretty much safe and sound. We don't have to worry about its future. Cause that's castle with the uh, episode murder. He wrote <laughs>
1: Escaping to the Hamptons for a romantic weekend Castle and Beckett end up in the middle of a murder investigation When a dying man falls into Castle's pool
0: This week's episode finally took us on The long-awaited trip with Castle to the Hamptons And I know Nico's been wanting that for a while And at first, Beckett being overwhelmed By the size of Castle's house at the Hamptons Made me feel like we were in for a story Where Beckett was going to contend with The notion that her relationship with Castle cannot exist outside the precinct. Eventually, after some scenes that set the chippers crazy, it caused a lot of the guys to imagine Stanya Kalik naked, we got proof that despite their differences in lifestyle, Beckett and Castle's relationship will always work. Because at its core, it's based around the one thing they love the most. A good mystery. Which now seems to have a habit of Seeking them out When a dying man falls into Castle's pool Showing that even the universe Wants Castle and Beckett to be together In fact, as I said Two weeks ago, Castle and Beckett Be together makes them Better This episode went to show us That if Castle and Beckett are both Got their best when solving mysteries Then of course it's going to be a part of their romance Including the more passionate parts Everywhere they go whether it be the Hamptons or the precinct. So, Nico, what are your thoughts on my observations about Castle and Beckett's relationship and its current state now?
1: When you said that the Castle and Beckett relationship makes them better, you could have been more right. And this show, unlike our Monday Night Nightmare bones, has become even better with them together. I'm loving this season so far. And this episode was another winner in a season of winners so far. So, yeah, absolutely, them them being together is working, and it's working well because everything we've seen this season has been up to par with everything we saw before they got together. So there was no drop-off, and in fact, I think in some ways, it did definitely get better this season.
0: Right. Well, I mean, this show consistently has home run episodes. Yeah. Um, I can't think of an episode where we absolutely hated and blasted the thing. I'm kind of running scared when I say that now. <laughs> but it, again, it's only season five. It's not season six yet. So that's yeah, right. right. But I don't think uh, Castle's going to have any girlfriends come in and screw things up anymore. I think we're past that point. Thank I him. hope so. But uh, from here with my thoughts about Castle, and Beckett's relationship in mind. This episode had a ton of great moments that kept my family chuckling including this show's usual great one-liners, the Hamptons' chief of police thinking Beckett was a hooker, Castle having a scary encounter with a mob pass, and TV's hottest couple trying to keep Ryan and Esposito from discovering that they are now an item. Also, I've got to say I really enjoyed David Berg, who has, a part, uh, who has appeared on a ton of TV shows we've watched, including Chuck and Bones, as the Hamptons Chief of Police. He gave off just this enough of a Barney Fife vibe if you ever watched the old Andy Griffith show to create a humorous awkward relationship with Castle Beckon. Beckett. But at the same time we could buy into him shooting the murderer at the end of the episode. So with that Nico, I know this isn't our sit- uh, sitcom, <laughs> but uh, there was a lot of funny moments in this episode. Did you have a favorite comedic moment?
1: You know, Dan, I think you're correct that Dave Burke's Chief McCandless was just enough Barney Fife to make the scenes with him enjoyable, but I didn't really find him that funny. Like, I didn't find him laugh out loud funny. I enjoyed the ridiculousness of a Hamptons police chief who only dealt with drugs and parking tickets in his entire career and then ends up shooting his own deputy, who also happens to be the local meth drug lord. But besides that calling Beckett a hooker, which was laugh out loud funny. I didn't really laugh at his antics too much, but I did laugh when he (laughs) implied that she was a hooker. That was enough to make me laugh. But, you know, I didn't really have a a favorite line that he said or anything other than that.
0: Well, I I was just talking in general about the whole episode. Yeah,
1: I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for sure, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, I thought he was so funny or anything like that, but it was good.
0: I I think what was funny was Beckett and Castle's reactions to him. I think that's what made it funny. It wasn't him. It was Castle and Beckett reacting to him. That was funny.
1: That's a good point.
0: And really, I sat through this episode having a good time, chuckling at stuff. You could tell that one horrid scene, and you know what I'm talking about, where Nathan Fillion got of his own mouth, said that infernal word that describes Castle and Beckett that we refuse to say on this podcast. Yeah, I mentioned that later. <laughs> that's, that's the opposite of coffin. I, I just imagined you, like, collapsing off the couch in agony when he said that.
1: I cried a little bit.
0: Okay, okay. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Meanwhile, back in the city, Brian and Esposito provided the support to who they thought was just Castle solving this week's mystery while trying to figure out the identity of Beckett's new boyfriend. In my opinion, I enjoyed Ryan and Esposito going back through Beckett's old boyfriends, as it reminded me of past Castle episodes that I've enjoyed, conversations we've had here on the podcast, where we would go crazy over the will-they-won't-they days of Castle and Beckett's relationship. But I would have to say my favorite part of Ryan and Esposito's called Boyfriend Investigation, was when they confronted Laney about Beckett still being with Josh. Laney is a character who my dad, who's a big Castle fan, claims to deliver some of the best sarcastic one of the series, and she sure lived up to it here. Plus, Castle being put on speakerphone, with Beckett in the background freaking out, just added to the humor of this great scene with the precinct cast. And as for the resolution to the side plot, my family and I were taking bets, kind if Ryan and Esposito were going to find out about Castle and Beckett's relationship in this episode. And it turned out we were all sort of wrong as Ryan found out about the secret relationship. But the way he discovered it in the interrogation room was probably the best way the people behind Castle could have done it. Because I felt we got probably one of Seamus Dever's best comedic performances of the series so far. And uh, Nico, what did you think of the scene? The interrogation scene.
1: Uh yeah, I loved that. I love that scene. Yeah. I thought Seamus Dever played it very well. Yeah. And I really thought when when he was like, What was her name? Tell me her name yeah. You know, it was great. And he was like, Kate, it was Kate and he's like, I knew it <laughs> <laughs> And no, that, that was it was it was good. I liked
0: it. I, I mean I really think that was one of the best ways they could have done it.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: Um, and that actor that was the the boss on Journeyman. Did you watch Journeyman?
1: I did watch Journeyman. Kind of I don't. Kid. Yes.
0: That was the actor that was his boss at the newspaper.
1: Okay, I, I don't <laughs> remember that, but good call.
0: <laughs> so I just threw that out there, and uh, he was, uh, you know, a pretty solid actor. Actor who's been oh doing for a lot sure of things. So that was a great person to have in the scene and really make it work for everyone. Well, now, obviously, Ryan finding out that Castle Beckett are now an item, of course, prompts him to give Castle a hard time about it. Because he's, well, Castle, and he kind of asks to be given a hard time about things. But Ryan doesn't reveal he knows the secret to him or his good buddy Esposito. On that note, I like that Ryan didn't reveal that he knew about the relationship because it firmly established his role as a member of the precinct team who looks out for Beckett and her team or acts as the group's conscience, justifying Ryan's elevation to a lead character and coming across as a whistleblower in last season's finale. So with Ryan keeping a lid on things to support Castle and Beckett's happiness because he's just a nice guy, I'm going to give him the award for ending my Monday night television watching on a feel-good note. But I have a feeling that's not going to be the case in two weeks, but Castle gets framed for a supernatural style as in the TV show demonic killing that I think has the return of the triple killer written all over it as he was probably able to get the DNA which the preview said was at the crime scene from Castle when he knocked him out at the end of the first triple killer episode again I might get overexcited that he's showing up again and I know I've said it a hundred times where I'm like called the triple killer is coming back, and he's not. But I'm hoping I'm right this time. <laughs> so, Nico, what was your thought on Ryan's decision to keep Castle Beckett's relationship quiet? And what do you think of my predictions for the episode in the next two weeks? Am I calling a red herring here?
1: I think Ryan's decision to keep the secret is indicative of his being the moral compass of the team. The guy who looks out for the other members, as you mentioned, and will protect their secret not only because he doesn't want to see them get hurt, but also to atone for the damage his going to gates and ultimately doing the right thing last season did to Beckett's career by getting her suspended and her almost quitting the force. So I think he's going to keep it for those two reasons. As for the next episode, not next week since the next episode isn't for two weeks, but I'm I'm not sure I'm excited about this episode either. Making Castle the suspect in a murder investigation is going back to the well one too many times, yeah. as they've already done this in earlier episodes. But if this is the triple killer's doing and they can clear Castle early enough in this in the episode and go after the triple killer in this episode, then I will enjoy it. If they spend most of the episode proving Castle is innocent, then the episode will be a huge disappointment for me. I, I have a prediction, though. I predict that Castle and Beckett will have, will have been together during the time of the murder, and they will spend the first part of the episode trying to prove he is innocent without needing Beckett to give him an alibi. Ultimately, Beckett will decide... The only way to clear Castle is to come clean that they were together during the murder and he couldn't have done it when Ryan will find some way to prove Castle's innocence without Beckett and Castle's relationship being exposed. So Castle, or Beckett will actually come to the decision that she's she will say to Castle, I'm just going to tell Gates that we were together and that there was no way that you could be committing the murder and – He said, no, there's got to be another way. There isn't. We've looked. And then Ryan will come in and be like, guys, I got the evidence that clears castle. This is, you know, and Beckett will be like, oh, thank God.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Also, I got a final note. As we mentioned before, the one thing I did not like about this episode was that Castle legitimized that stupid casket name when he referenced it as a great Brangelina-like name for their relationship. I think I actually cried a little inside when he said that. It was terrible and just awful. And I couldn't believe these great writers would stoop to that level to use such a terrible, terrible name.
0: I can't believe Nathan Fellin said it. That agony... (laughs) like, Nathan, no. (laughs) As soon as it went there, I'm like, don't say it. I was like, ah. Oh, man. But besides that, great episode. Absolutely. A lot of fun. Looking forward to what they throw at us next. And I like your idea for the next episode being about the idea of the drama coming from Castle having to make the alibi that he was with Beckett. Right. Instead of the fact that he's framed. Right. That's much more interesting and that fits the dynamic of where this relationship's going. So yeah. don't panic yet. But again, I am running scared where I'm like, oh, these past like four episodes have been really good. Uh-oh, we're in for a dud. So hopefully that's not next week. But uh, episode five's normally big, so hopefully it'll all work out. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about Good episode of a show that's beginning for me to feel like it's in a phase where it's losing steam. Uh, it seems with new sitcoms recently, they get to season four and they run out of gas. That's what happened with 30 Rock, which won three Emmys in a row. Now Modern Family won three M- Emmys in a row, and now they're having issues of not being as good as they were before. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode The Butler's Escape. <laughs>
1: Mitchell tends to Lily while Cam goes through with his first day of teaching music at Franklin Middle School, both of which have less than favorable results. While Manny and Jay cope with Gloria's new excessive snoring, additionally Alex copes or Alex cops an attitude which annoys Claire, and Luke announces he's quitting magic, which to, much to Phil's dismay.
0: After last week's hour-long chunk of Modern Family to feature hilarious episodes, I thought this show was back on track from a disappointing season premiere. But this episode felt just yes. as lackluster as that one, meaning my favorite comedic moments from this week's episode were the only parts that were funny. And this was basically the opening where Jay went into the living room for a quiet place to sleep, go away from glorious snoring, only to find both spots taken by and the dog, and Luke disappearing in a puff of smoke. But he told Phil he didn't want to be a magician anymore. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment uh, from this week's Modern Family that I thought was going to deliver a lot more laughs?
1: Yeah, Dan, the Luke magic stuff was the only thing I really enjoyed this week. The one where Luke says he hates magic and disappears in a puff of snow made me laugh out loud, and I loved it. But really, nothing else really made me laugh. I love Luke, but this... This week with that, that one scene was spectacular, even yes. for him.
0: Yeah, that, that kid honestly steals the show when he's on screen.
1: Yeah.
0: I can't wait to see where he goes with his career. Uh, but yeah, Luke is making the show work right now. Besides that, I don't know where it's going. So, but, you know, modern families like this. It's a roller coaster. Some weeks it's funny, some weeks it's hilarious. And some weeks it's not that great. So there you go. So with that, we're going to talk about a show that I think is back on track. I don't want to say it too soon, but I was feeling pretty good after I got done watching this episode. So let's talk about (coughs) the Supernatural episode that has a title that kind of symbolized the past two seasons called Heartache. (laughs) Heartache.
1: The Winchesters track down and capture a killer stalking people who all receive organs from the same donor. However, they soon discover that the case is far from over.
0: This week, we got what I like to call a classic episode of Supernatural. As there was not really big forward momentum in the overarching story, but it contained a mystery that provided enough head-scratchers from Supernatural events get movie references, such as the stripper's eyes glowing being from Ghostbusters, Add the eating the heart thing being from Temple of Doom to keep us invested in this story until the revolution. Plus, the bad guy was a stripper. I mean, who could turn away from that? Also, I like the idea of this episode's one-shot story being about an athlete who kept himself immortal by performing a May- Mayan ritual revolving around eating hearts. There's a whole treasure trove of stories surrounding superstition with sports, or horror-like, cautionary tales about athletes. And I was glad to see Supernatural go this direction, or tackle this genre, especially since it gave me an awesome idea for the writers to do an episode about superstition in baseball, which could throw in a reference to the accursed goat that Cub fans like Nico and I hate. And so Nico, what did you think of the investigation that went out of this episode got this idea they brought up of an mortal athlete
1: what i liked about this week's investigation was that the brothers did not immediately know what the monster they were hunting was yeah. and that led to some guess and check investigation methods that worked well and kept me in the story if they had known instantly what was going on like they sometimes do i would not have been as invested in this story particularly But by doing it this way this week, I was kept interested in the story throughout to the end. As for the athlete aspect in this week's story, I like the idea that a professional athlete had made a deal with a god for eternal youth and had to keep changing sports and looks to be able to compete year after year and not give up his secret of being immortal. I really kind of like that. I actually really like those stories that deal with immortality and things like that. This obviously was a monster this time, and he had to sacrifice two hearts a year, so he had to murder two people a year to continue that. But if you look at a show I thought got canceled way too early, it was New Amsterdam, and I always right. mention that show because I did very much enjoy it. It dealt with the, the same aspect, n- not in the monster sense, but the immortality and how a guy had to change his identity every 20 – in that one, he did it every 20 uh, years, but he wasn't high-profile people, so he could get away with it. And usually, his kids would then become his parents, and that was kind of really cool. So I really liked this story. I really liked where it went. That's basically what I was trying to get at.
0: Right? No, that's that's a good call. I mean, I do think that concept does work for a series, and it's a shame that show didn't work out because that seems interesting to me. Yeah. And ultimately, this week's Supernatural Murder Mystery did something interesting as it led to a resolution that brought something into the show we really haven't seen a lot of. Love. No, I'm not talking about brotherly love. Believe me, this show's tackled that. I'm talking the romantic style of love. As Winchester's answers to bringing down the monstrous stripper came from an old woman who fell in love with the immortal athlete changing it from someone who was obsessed with competition to a man who killed himself because he could not stand the fact that the woman he loved was getting old. With that being said, if this was season six or seven, some of the writers that worked on this show would have set it up that this revelation had nothing to do with the Winchesters. But the writers now seem to care enough about the characters for this to really hit home for both brothers with it applying to Sam's love for the veterinarian Camellia changing him, because we saw in the flashbacks, at Dean's time in Purgatory, making him go back to the guy who gets a thrill out of being a hunter of supernatural things. So, Nico, I mean, what was your thoughts on how this cautionary tale about the immortal athlete falling above connected to Sam and Dean's personal issues, and what was going on with them throughout the episode?
1: You know, I really liked the idea that when the monster met his true love, he ultimately decided to give up his immortality so he did not have to live without his love. That added a significant, or uh, added a slightly different feel to this monster, especially since he killed himself but just didn't do a good enough job killing himself that his organs didn't burn and they were ultimately transported into others, turning into new monsters that were exactly like he was. I love that idea as well because it was a combination of a murder transplant ghost story and a deal with a devil, sort of story. And I I sort of really love the the combination of those two things in this, uh, you know, the in to be that cautionary tale about the immortal, uh, immortal athlete or immortal uh, being. And I like that. And I liked how it kind of did. Sort of connect it. I didn't k- get the connection, it maybe as much as you did, Dan, in my my watching, and really didn't see it until I got, you know, I read through some of your comments. But I do like the idea that it did connect to Sam and Dean's personal issues. Dean got something completely out of this story or this experience, different than what Sam was getting, and it it totally validated everything Dean was feeling in how he was. Back, he was back to the guy he was before he went before uh, season six. You know, <laughs> he was back to that guy, and he he felt everything was right in the world. Sam felt validated that he was no longer that guy. He was no longer the guy that he was, and he probably was back to the guy that he was before Dean got him in the pilot. You know, came and before he lost Jess. You know. So I think that both of these guys were their feelings were more intense afterwards or validated afterwards that they what they are feeling is exactly what they're really feeling.
0: And I liked it how, you know, what you said is it's almost like they treated them as separate characters. Uh-huh. You know, they have separate things going on where I think in previous seasons, the past two especially, they were treating them as as one entity.
1: Uh-huh
0: as one person and having them both go through the same crap. And you gotta remember these brothers are different. And really that's what this show should be doing to pack the punch it once had. Cause I kind of get up on my soapbox here. I mean, this show should be combining elements of horror with the brothers' personal drama of fighting for the things they want while still trying to stick together. Instead of going for full on horror, in other words, these past two weaker seasons kind of run like horror movies with Sam and Dean almost left victimized for life by the monsters they've had to face. And that's great. If this was a one and done movie or American horror story, which is a TV show where they bring in a completely new cast of characters for the next season. But supernatural brings us back to the same characters every week. Meaning there needs to be a reason for us as the audience To keep coming back to them. And doom and gloom just wasn't cutting it. I mean we follow a TV series. To escape the stress and complications. Cover everyday life. Not to feel worse about them. By following the Winchesters. Into a void of darkness. However now Jeremy Carver. As showrunner has proven. He understands this. By bringing Supernatural back. To its roots of being a show. About Sam seeking revenge on the demons for ruining his life and overcoming this tragedy to escape the life of a hunter although I don't want to call this a reset button because Dean telling Sam that he only feels like he wants to leave life as a hunter now only to change his mind later was a perfect way for the writers to not deny that the past seven seasons happened but explain that the first five seasons was about Sam getting revenge Six and seven were about I don't know what. And eight is all about Sam overcoming the tragedy demons put in his life. Yes, Sam's life is crazy, violent, and contains things we could barely fathom if they were real. But Jeremy Carver is allowing us to see ourselves inside of Sam. Because he's got his own ups and downs in his life. Just like the rest of us. The demons messing up his life in the first five seasons were a down. And now in Finding Love, he's ended up that we're compelled to learn more about because us true fans want him to rebuild his life. Again, everything I just said might come across as complicated to those of you listening to the show, but it's TV writing 101 because when it comes down to it, almost every show at its core has a central storyline about a character suffering some kind of loss that shatters the fabric of who they are and what compels us to keep watching every week is how well the writers present their struggles with piecing their lives back together. Supernatural failed to see that over the past two seasons and suffered for it, as Sarah Gamble, a showrunner, proved she was very good at making the characters suffer loss, but tended to forget the part about piecing their lives back together. But after the steps made in the past three episodes, I'm beginning to feel it's safe to say, this show might be back on track. As long as things don't keep going the route of Dean ending up alone. But I think this season's (laughs) second half is going to be designated towards solving that problem to avoid the issue we had in the second half of last season, where the story fell flat. So now that I'm off my soapbox, I'm going to hand things out to Nico so he can talk as long as he wants about the current status of Supernatural as a series and mention anything about any crackpot theories he has about future episodes. <laughs> oh, cool, I need some water now, huh?
1: Yeah. Dan, I agree with you that Jeremy Carver has returned Supernatural to its former glory, and it is on its way back to being great TV every week. I hope that this continues. This was a great third directorial effort by Jensen Ackles, who brought a little gore this week, but gore that was backed up by good storytelling that has dominated this season, as we keep saying week after week. I'm not really a fan of this whole Dean continuing to sulk over Sam not being or not looking for him during the, his year in Purgatory, but at the same time, Dean also is trying to reconnect with Sam. So I do enjoy, I do like that part. Yeah. He seemed almost, but Dean almost seemed manic in his drive to recreate the good old days. I sort of meant mentioned that earlier that he was validated by this story that he is back and he's trying to recreate those good old days, but Sam wasn't feeling it. Sam is obviously me- missing his lady friend and the normal life he had before except for those four years at, or that he had never had before, except for those four years at Stanford that I guess we're just pretending never happened. Also, another thing that sort of bugged me about this episode was that the final flashback scene at the end of the episode with Amelia and the dog Riot, which was touching, but the implication that Sam Winchester has never in his entire life had a birthday cake just didn't really mesh with me. And it didn't really mesh with what we know about his past. It seemed inconsistent with what we'd seen in even some flashbacks in the past. Dean stole stole for his baby brother at the time Christmas presents to make the holiday special. You don't think he would do the same for Sam's birthday? Come on. And Jess, as I mentioned before, she cooked cookies in in the pilot purely because she was missing her boyfriend because he was studying too much i don't think birthday cakes would have been a stretch for her you know and i think some of the guys at at ign were making the same point that you know this was way out of left field it was like somebody had written this scene had never seen the first five seasons of supernatural anyway that just kind of Ticked me off. As as you can see, I'm, I'm talking well, about you know, it.
0: And that's why I, I'm here giving that old big soapbox thing. Right. Uh, trying to justify it in my head. Yeah. Because I've gone through such agony in the past few seasons with this show. I, I need something to make me think I'm not going crazy. Right.
1: right. But something. really, I mean, right. these are nit, nitpicky things that we are complaining about right now. Because I'm loving this season of Supernatural. I've said that a ton, that I am loving this season of Supernatural. If you would asked me the last two years, do you like the show Supernatural still? I would have said no, not really. You know, But there were good episodes, but really the whole seasons were not really great. Right. This so far has been a win-win-win. Like I was saying, well, Castle was a win after win.
0: Right. Well, it's, it's the show we remember watching.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And this is exactly what happened with Smallville in Season 8. Exactly. Where it's like, wait, there's forward progression. This show's going somewhere again. Oh, my God, and and it's happening here. Um, So whoever at the CW went, you know what? Maybe we need to change hands here. That was a great idea. Great call. And I mean, I guess it's, I don't know if it's a shame that Sarah Gamble will forever be known as the person who, Messed up Supernatural, but <laughs> right. Uh, you know, right now it's just like, hey, this is good. But that's because Jeremy Carver was there when it was good, and he left when it was good. Right. So he's not had that bad taste in his mouth of everything going to pot. I mean, I think he's doing a great job, you know, with what he's got going on here. And but uh, I think that's all we got to say. I think people have heard me talk enough about Supernatural. Yeah. Today. So I think you've had enough of me talking about Supernatural. For today, so we're gonna move on with the Big Bang Theory. Of the episode, the re-entry, but it was stationed. Mm-hmm.
1: Wallowitz is disappointed when he doesn't receive a hero's welcome upon his return from space, while game night degenerates into a pit- pitched battle of the
0: sexes. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be Sheldon plague dictionary. He just took the game way too literally. And apparently was so overconfident in his ability to cream penny, he was unable to correctly read the word Polish, thinking it was Polish. In fact, the whole Game Night storyline was laugh out loud hilarious. But I'm only going to mention this one scene because I don't want to steal Nico's thunder with talking about this episode.
1: Actually, Dan, my favorite comedic moment was the Raj line where he said, we kind of fill each other's holes now. (laughs) That was the best line of the episode, and really the only one that made me actually laugh. Otherwise, they spent entirely too much time on the whole Howard feeling sorry for himself because nobody seemed to care he was home. That was kind of a real weak point of this episode. Definitely the your Pictionary thing was absolutely... Right on. It was funny, but it just didn't make me laugh out loud.
0: Okay. Maybe it was an audience thing. I watched it with a bunch of people. We all thought it was hilarious. So that
1: that might be true. It was also after midnight for me.
0: Okay. Well, that's true too. Also, uh, Michael threw in that he thought the part where um, they were kissing Sheldon, Avi <laughs> and funny he thought that was kind of amusing as well. Yeah. So that's what I thought you were going to say, but. I was incorrect. You proved me wrong. So nice job on surprising me. And that was a good line, by the way. That was a good call. You, you say that. So with that, we're going to move on to the more dramatic part of CBS's Thursday Nights with the person of interest episode, Masquerade.
1: Reese returns to field work and must protect the spoiled daughter of a Brazilian diplomat.
0: This week's episode of Person of Interest was all about the audience, writers, and characters all getting their bearings straight following the end of the Save Finch from Root story arc. Now, just because this was a slow episode, that didn't mean it wasn't entertaining. As the interaction between the main characters and their witty banter with each other can be grinning throughout the entire episode. And it's very noticeable that the writers are having a ton of fun playing off the buddy cop banter with Fusco through the caller ID for Finch and his cell phone being Mr. Good News. And the girl Reese was protecting, explaining how Fusco remembered her uncle. Honestly, the writers of this show has gotten to the point where their lead characters mesh together really well. And that's a great thing for them to have in slower episodes like this one because it keeps us from feeling bored. While they are going through that natural process that all shows, do, of reminding us about past villains. Building up those great shocker moments that leave us blown away by this show. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on the connections between the lead characters at this point in the series? Is that working for you? Did that hold you over? Get a slower episode like this one?
1: Yeah, Dan, it did. As I said a few weeks ago, I thought this show was so much better now that the entire team is working together. Each of them has their role, although we saw in this episode that Finch was feeling that Reese had usurped some of his role while gone. But they pretty much resolved those issues by the end of the episode. But as I was saying, each member has their role, and they all work together so well that I am loving this new whole-team approach to the show. I like the interactions between Fusco and Reese the most, basically because they are the most comedic Uh, things of this of these episodes you know it's really where the comedy lies is those two interacting but i think the recent finch friendship is the most compelling dynamic and i like that too because we were we were worried that there was going to be a major falling out before they became partners and friends and that didn't happen but we were worried about it and i like seeing this friendship development
0: at the same time i was amused in this episode with the give and take that occurred in this episode, with the Brazilian diplomat's daughter trying to give Reese the slip when he was masquerading as her bodyguard, Gadawi he always was that one step ahead of her. Guy also thought the conspiracy that the writer drew between Reese protecting the daughter and Fitch accepting the dog was creative, but I could see the others saying it was a bit on the cutesy side for an action series. Fortunately with me being a dog lover, I fell for this stuff, took light, and sinker. So, Nico, did you buy this stuff, or did you think it was too cutesy?
1: I am, too, a sap when it comes to dogs, so I fell for yeah. it as well. I thought it was done effectively so that we could see the dog as helping Finch get over his PTSD and get back right. to normal. There was the issue that he could not leave the house even to come and watch— this week's person of interest. And I was fearful that they were going to make him agoraphobic. But luckily that does not seem to be the case as he was able to go for that walk slash beer with Reese and the dog at the end of the episode. I think we'll see more of Finch and the dog as he continues to heal. Dogs are great for that kind of stuff. I like it.
0: Well, it's also from like Reese's experience as a soldier. It seemed like he knew he needed the dog. Yes, Because I'm sure he's had his own issues with that kind of stuff after coming back from different fights he's been in and missions he's been on. So Right. Um, I, I can see where that's coming from. In addition, with all this cutesy stuff going on, I thought we were going to build up to a point where the doors were going to blow off on this person of interest case. Got The mission to protect the Brazilian Dipsalmat's daughter was going to erupt Get into some government conspiracy or some big thing like that. But surprisingly, the story digressed into a much smaller conflict involving urban drug dealers. In my opinion, I was fine with the conflict of the week introverting instead of extroverting. But I was kind of disappointed that they didn't do more with the story arc caused by the bad guys just being average drug dealers of the pampered and spoiled Diplomat's daughter losing her innocence for simply just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, Nico, what did you think about the case not exploding and becoming something smaller like a drug bus? And also, what did you think about the serious turn this story took for the diplomat's daughter?
1: Dan, this was a standard person of interest episode. And thus, this was exactly the way the story should have gone. If it blew up into a government conspiracy and became a huge deal, it would have been too unbelievable that we would have been taken out of the story. Rather, they could satiate that desire of ours by bringing the true government conspiracy story arc back into the limelight with the reintroduction of Reese's old partner, Agent Snow's return, and the idea that the woman who was Nathan's contact with the NSA was chipped like a dog and how that was a huge problem for the guys behind the conspiracy. That was where this episode really shined. Yeah. And so it didn't need to blow up into a a Brazilian government conspiracy.
0: Also in the opening of the show, they even talk about how they're worried about the insignificant people that the machine sees, but the government and other law enforcement authorities overlook Exactly. So it's good to remind us in the second season that this machine also deals with can handles the little cases as well as the big ones. And that's important to remember with the show moving forward or if there's new uh watchers checking out the show. The new audience members checking out the show. Then again, this epiphany the diplomat's daughter had, I also felt was not about her. It was a metaphor at least what I thought regarding the personal conflict Finch was facing in this episode with being afraid to go out again after being kidnapped. Speaking of which, the moments that interest me the most in this episode, which, Nico, you kind of already went over, was re-asking Finch out for a beer, and Finch not really knowing how to react when both Carter and Fusco told him that they were glad he was okay. And it makes me feel like that with these scenes happening his character's story arc is going to be about overcoming his struggles, centering on connecting with people. In other words, last season was about Reese and Finch solidifying themselves as allies. And I think this season is going to be about them solidifying themselves as friends. I know that sounds a little buddy sitcom-like, but you know what I mean, right, Nico? Yeah, I, I know what you mean,
1: Dan. I like that idea, though.
0: Okay. Now... Going back to what you were saying about the government conspiracy and that happening again, the CIA stuff coming back in. I mentioned earlier that this episode was about creating, setup for the big shocker moments that leave us blown away from this show. And really, that was Detective Carter's part in this episode. As Fusco warning Carter that following up on Alicia Corwood's death was beyond them. Him saying that us in a way made Carter just curious enough to go on a one-woman investigation where she ran into Agent Snow, who I originally thought was up to causing some trouble for the CIA to either capture Reese or do some bad thing. But I forgot that he was left last season at the mercy of Reese's old partner. And I was kind of shocked after getting us that scene to see him working for her. But that turned out not to be the case at all as Agent Snow is shown with a bob strapped to his chest, making me think that ex partner is trying to get Snow's number to show up on the machine so she can take out a major target along with Reese and Snow at the same time because we know if Snow's number comes up, Reese and Fitch are most definitely going to want to get involved. Unfortunately, I don't think that episode is going to take place next week because the preview showed that it's going to be about the mob. But that's okay, because it may mean more development Got the Elias story, which is always just as good. Guys, for this episode, I'm just going to sum it up by saying, for the writers at this point, to pull back like they did, something huge is on the rise for this show. So Nico, what's your thoughts about this crackpot theory, and do you have any predictions for future episodes?
1: Dan, I also had almost forgotten about Reese's ex-partner and her whole storyline. Almost. (laughs) It appears that she kidnapped Agent Snow and is forcing him to work for her to find out why she was set up on that mission to China with Reese and who set her up. I don't think she's going after Reese. I think she is looking for Reese, and if, if she finds him, it'll be to use him to find out why they were set up. She may even want Reese to become an ally in the future. I, I like her character only because she kind of seems really interesting to me, anyways. Yes, and I think there are quite a few ways that they could go forward with her story arc. They definitely could go the way you you're talking, where she's trying to draw Reese out and hopefully blow up <laughs> Snow, him, and maybe even Finch. She may try to expose the machine if she finds out that it is what set her up yeah she may be just trying to find out who set them up and get payback on them or just kill them who knows um you know and so there's so many different ways that this could go it's really compelling a a compelling story arc right exactly now as for next week i do hope this mob episode has an elias tie-in if not, it will not ruin the episode for me. But it has been an awful long time since we had an Elias episode, yeah. and it's about time for that to occur. Much like they revived the, revived the ex-partner and Agent Snow arcs this week, it's probably Elias's turn next week. Right. So I'm looking forward to that. This is such a great show. I, I'm really enjoying this second season.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was a, a laid-back episode. Mm-hmm. But it still gave us enough to keep us excited for what's to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even find the main story this week boring or anything. Right. I thought it was it was very compelling, and it was just a standard issue person of interest episode. And I'm still liking that formula. So, as far as I was concerned, it was good.
0: If you love the standard episodes, that means the show's in really good shape. Yes. And person of interest just keeps going strong, and for a second season of a show, I, I don't see any signs of a slump at all. They know what they're doing here, I think. So with that, you want to move on to the airways rundown section?
1: You're watching CBS, sci-fi's home for Mondays, FX, USA. Characters welcome. EMT We know drama. Yeah, and this week it's going to be a much shorter rundown section because I've been traveling, and unfortunately with traveling, I've been unable to watch a lot of the shows that we watch. I made sure that we I was able to watch all the ones that we do for our regular section, but unfortunately I didn't get a chance to watch most of the other ones, so Dan and I really can't discuss them this week. But don't worry, we will we'll jump back into a normal one next week. But we're going to go ahead and kick off our much abbreviated rundown section with a review of Revolution with the fifth episode, Soul Train.
0: After orders from Monroe, Danny becomes more valuable, decreasing his safety. The group experiences more problems in finding him However, and the problems weren't as exciting as I thought they were cracked up to be. So taking away (laughs) with that, Nico.
1: Yeah, that summary sounds like it was written by Yoda. Yes. This episode was a disappointment. I expected an episode centered on Neville to be an amazing episode that really sucked us into the story. And unfortunately, my expectations were pretty much not met. We got to see Neville before and on the night of the blackout. That was good. He was a guy who was letting everyone run over him in his daily life, from the boss who casually fired him to the neighbor who didn't respect him, while he was building up a lot of rage inside him. And that worked, especially when the actor Giancarlo Esposito so expertly played this guy putting on a happy face who was filled With a ton of anger, frustration, and violence just ready to explode. And explode he did as when he killed his neighbor who was robbing him. While we still have plenty of more steps to see how he became a big part of Monroe's militia, we did see him take his first life in the aftermath of the revolution, crossing a line and transforming in a way that would allow him to, or allow him so drastically to reinvent himself. Really, the flashbacks are the only thing I'm enjoying about this show right now anymore. The present is mired by the Charlie character and her damn brother who is a giant tool. I swear, if Charlie keeps acting like a freaking idiot and doesn't die or or die soon, I'm calling BS and scrapping this show. So the writers have two options at this point. Keep her the idiot she has been in the last three episodes and then kill her off or have her learn some common sense and become a realistic character already. I'm just sick of this show. And as I said, the only real cool thing that I like about it is the flashback sequences, which are very well done. At least this week, they were very well done with the Neville character. Dan, what are your thoughts on this episode of revolution and really Kind of the show in general at this point.
0: Okay, with this episode, um, I want to say John Carlo Esposito, the guy's a great actor. I, I do want to give him credit for that. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I think he that needs to be said. Beyond that, though, I mean, Charlie, she needed to act the way in the last like three minutes of the episode, where she gives that speech. It kind of like takes charge of the group. Right. She's needed to act that way since episode one. <laughs> yes. And so I'm like, okay, this is how you do it. You keep her this way. And I thought last week was going to be the beginning of that, but we kind of had this week with her still being more whiny. The other thing is they kind of built up this whole thing with the train. and I didn't think it was as impressive as it could have been, you know, yeah. not compared to like, look at Arrow. Look at person of interest.
1: Here's my problem with the train. They have the bomb in the in the engine compartment or in yes. the in the locomotive. Why don't they just pull the pin on the the rest of the train and exactly. let the locomotive go and blow up? You know? That would have been the smart thing to do. But they had to get rid of the bomb. No, that was so
0: stupid did and they unrealistic. See, did they see Back to the Future part three before the power went out or what?
1: Yeah, I mean, hey. come on. That was just really stupid.
0: Yeah, I agree. But see, they couldn't afford to do that. That <laughs> right. was probably what it was. Okay, so they let it go. And, and then I thought about it: like, did Charlie have her bow and arrow on her back when she went in the train car to save her brother?
1: I don't know if she actually did bring it with her when why, she. Why wouldn't this- you? When they stole the, the horses, maybe just because they knew that they were going to have to jump onto the train and I it guess. might be getting in the way. I don't know.
0: I mean, because I, I would just shoot the guy with yeah. an arrow, you know, when he like ran towards her. I don't know. I just, There's just a lot of things that are not covered very well in this show. Right. And they, they dropped the ball all over the, all over the place. I mean, really, I just I thought the action scene would be more impressive. Got there's nothing for me personally this show that's gotten me really excited about something. Not like, you know, something like Last Resort has or Arrow or even Person of Interest pilot last season. Right. Like, there was something in those episodes that made me smile, that made me connect to a character and want to root for them. That hasn't happened with Revolution yet. God, I'm surprised because with something like Supernatural, Kripke had two characters— right off the bat that I was connected with and interested in. Yep. And this isn't happening here. There's no, like, Sam or Dean character that we're getting connected to. And, and, I mean, those are the strongest characters Kripke can write. And we don't have something like that here. There should be in Miles, and I don't know why it's not happening.
1: Well, I think Miles is still the best character they have. Right. And Neville is probably the best villain they have so far just because they haven't really focused on Monroe yet. We've seen him in a couple flashbacks, and we've seen him with the few scenes with the, I believe the mom's name is Rachel. Yes. Okay. With the Rachel character. But beyond that, we really haven't gotten much out of him. So I'm I'm waiting for that. I know that's coming, and you know the Monroe character and the Miles character going head to head. I think is going to be really good stuff later on. We just have to get there, and the getting there is the painful part right now.
0: Well, I just I don't know if you can keep the audience around long enough to get there.
1: Well, apparently NBC thought they could because they renewed it for the full or not renewed it, but um, picked it up for the full season. So they're going to give it its shot, and hopefully they can get this show squared away by the finale.
0: But I think it's a much better call for them to give Arrow a full season (laughs) than this show. Yes. And I'm not kidding. So I don't know. that's, That's how I feel. So with that, I guess we'll move on to talking about Tuesday night, and we'll talk about a show that has actually been guaranteed, I think, Seven seasons by FX. Because they're at season five, and whoa, it's getting intense on this show. If you like intense television and are cool with violence, check out Sons of Anarchy. And we'll talk today about the episode A Small World.
1: Gotta look this light in the eye.
0: Jax brings a new proposal to the club with serious consequences. On this week's episode, tensions continued to rise for the motorcycle club as jacks continued to be used as the rope in the tug-of-war between the philosophies of the Denzel Washington American gangster-style crime boss, Damien Pope and the supposedly-reformed drug dealer, Nero, played by Jimmy Smits. Here in this story... The devil on Jax's shoulder, who I think is Pope, versus the angel, who is Nero, directed him towards performing an action that may possibly never let him escape a life of violence, even though it was somewhat justified. Ultimately, this scene, which will probably never let me listen to the song It's a Small World the Same ever again, got the resolution to Nero's half-sister, jealousy over Jax's mother led to what my good friend Colin Hendershot who I'd like to give a shout out to called the most crazy messed up episode of the series. He said that with very, very wide eyes. That was a true expression to have regarding this episode. However, that's not all that went down in this episode as Pope might not be the one that's sending Jax to the dark side. because we first get suspicions And then a confirmation that Clay is behind the series of break-ins that killed the sheriff's wife. Meaning, he's doing these things to sabotage his club's vigilante reputation from the inside. To get revenge on Jax, taking his place as president. And if you thought Ron Perlman was menacing, playing a bad guy who was kind of on the fence, seeing him as a full-on villain now was just scary as hell especially with the writers having Clay pull a usual suspects. Kaiser Soze, got his own club. Woo, this is getting intense, guys. Again, if you enjoy what Ron Perlman's acting, check out this show, because, man, he's one nasty bad guy here. So with that, we'll move on to talking about Wednesday night, with a show that's all about vigilante justice and battling bad guys, but because a little more or less violent, and stands more on the Sides of Good and Evil, the Sons of Anarchy's gray area. Okay, that's Arrow with the episode, otter Thy Father.
1: A corrupt businessman, Martin Summers, hires a Chinese assassin named China White to eliminate Laurel for finding out too much. While protecting Laurel, Oliver is offered the chance to take back control of the company.
0: This week's Arrow was all about introducing us to Oliver's allies in his fight for justice. And I've got to say, from what we saw this episode, this show has some great supporting characters played by some outstanding actors. In other words, this episode was able to keep the adrenaline-filled, action-packed pace of the pilot, which is not really easy to do for a second episode, but it was able to slip in these heartfelt scenes that made you really like Oliver's sister, Thea, in the role of a mentor to help him deal with his personal life and Diggle kind of acting as a mentor to help get his life as a vigilante although out of all the supporting characters Digg had to be my favorite don't get me wrong Thea had her great moment when she showed Oliver his mm-hmm. grave but her storyline makes me slightly nervous because it could easily turn into an after school special with the whole situation of her being on drugs and living that kind of lifestyle going back to Digg the reason why I like his character so much is the writers did a great job in this episode of giving a purpose to what could be a silly concept of a superhero having a bodyguard through Dick holding his own against a supervillain like China White. Okay, choosing to look the other way got Oliver's vigilante activities out of respect for Oliver saving his life. And This idea of not asking questions about their employer's late-night actions is what made Morgan Freeman's version of Lucius Fox, so enjoyable to audiences in the Christopher Nolan Batman films. God, I think we're going to get the same type of thing from Oliver and Digg's relationship, meaning there's going to be lots of fun scenes filled with badass dialogue between these guys to come. However, I have this sinking feeling that possibly in season two or three, Dig is going to get killed as a setback to Oliver's mission, so he doesn't run out of names to cross off in his journal and to also make room for Laurel becoming Black Canary. I also think once Dig dies, Thea is going to act as Oliver's moral compass, give both his personal and vigilante life, much like Oracle or Chloe Sullivan. Now, with me talking about supporting characters, you may be thinking I forgot Laurel, but to me, she is more of the female lead on the show, like Detective Kate Beckett, for those of you who watch Castle. Because the way she held her own in the courtroom during this episode proves she's not Smallville's lot of leg. In fact, the give and take between Oliver and Laurel when he showed up at her apartment made their romantic tension sizzle on screen, just like it did within the pages of Judd Winnick's short lived Green Arrow Black and comic book series. At the same time, Katie Cassidy did a fantastic job of playing Laurel or Dinah in the comic books ability to knock Oliver upside the head with a dose of common sense when he becomes reckless or goes on one of his famous guilt trips. In addition, I know Michael disagrees with me slightly on this one, but her performance when Laurel stood up to her dad about dropping the case she had this week brought us a long way in liking Detective Lance a little bit better when he came across as incredibly brash in the pilot. Guys, for the only issue I had with this episode, Oliver using a high-tech arrow to trick the villain of the week into incriminating himself was a retread of how they brought down the bad guy last week. So I hope we see something different with the next new episode. Can I think with Deadshot showing up, that most certainly is going to happen. Lastly, after discovering that Oliver's mom would make Lionel Luther the perfect wife, based on the fact that she sabotaged the Queen's Gambit ship that got Oliver trapped on the island. The archer who shot Oliver in the flashback at the end of the episode is probably someone who trades Oliver while he is on the island. But during that time, I think Deathstroke shows up on the island, hired to kill Oliver. And the mentor ends up dying thinking he killed Deathstroke, which explains why his mask appears on the beach of the island of the pilot. However, the next few episodes, Gulliver is going to discover Deathstroke survived his supposed death, get the hands of his master, so now he's going to have to face him. So with that crackpot theory, Nico, what did you think of this great second episode of Arrow, which I guess has earned it a full-season pickup?
1: You know, Michael and Wu did a great job with episode one of the Arrow podcast
0: Yes, they did. Show.
1: So those, show those guys some love like I did with a voicemail for episode two, or now do it for episode three this week. I loved the first episode of the Longbow Hunters uh, podcast last week and wanted to let everyone know we think they are doing a good job. Moving on to the second episode, Stephen Amell continues to impress me with his physicality and his quiet, brooding nature that has played so well in the series so far. The recurring flashbacks were put to good use this week, and the episode moved into surprisingly dark territory as Ali was forced to drag his father's corpse across the island and bury it. I love shows that utilize these flashbacks, like much like Fringe, Supernatural, and to a lesser degree, quality, uh, a lesser degree, lesser quality, Revolution is doing so well this year. Also, given that, fi- that final flashback scene... There's no question about whether Ali was actually alone on the island. Yep. Could we have caught our first glimpse at Green Arrow's mentor, essentially the man who taught him to shoot straight, fight hard, and speak various foreign languages? I think so. I also hope we see more of the evolution of Oliver the Playboy into the Green Arrow because, well, one thing I love origin stories, but also I think that that will be important to see how he learned all the necessary skills. He needs as we go forward in the present story arc in Star City. I also wanted to mention that we got a great comment from the friend of a podcast, Jason A., for both Supernatural and Arrow this week about the Arrow pilot. Last week he said, Arrow's very enjoyable. Really anticipating the Jeff Johns episode and John John Barrowman episode. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to John Barrowman on yes. this show. I love Captain Jack; he's one of my favorite characters of all time, both in Doctor Who and in Torchwood. So, John Barrowman being on a U.S. show, being a main character, because I think he's gonna—he's his part's gonna blow up, and he's going to be a main character. Oh, yeah. um, I'm really looking forward to that too. I love the fact that Jason is really always. There for a good comment, and I appreciate his uh, feedback on Facebook, Twitter, and always uh, comments on the on the website, too. So thanks, Jason. and uh, We wanted to give you a shout-out this week for commenting.
0: Most definitely. The feedback on Arrow has been outstanding from everybody. So yeah. We really, really appreciate the support you're showing our show. And as a special treat for you guys, we are actually going to be interviewing Mark Guggenheim. That's taking place tomorrow the day after we're recording this here. So it might be available to you guys by the time this episode gets out. But that's a special treat for you guys to look forward to. So if it's not already, go to the ATA website and check that out. If it's not out yet, just keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter and we'll let you know when it's released. But that's going to be a big thing for the show. We're really excited about it and we'll see how that all ends up going down. So yeah. it's very, very excited about Arrow here. Um, Nico, real quick question I wanted to ask. The Detective Lance character, where are you at on him? That's a debate we're having here at the podcast.
1: <laughs> I actually like him. Okay. I think uh, his his dislike of Oliver is warranted, and I think yeah. it is going to make good conflict. Because I think before he dies, because I I do think he will have to die, Yeah, I think he will learn Oliver's secret and— I think he will respect him for it and will keep his secret rather than turn to try and kill or uh, capture him and, or arrest him. I think he will initially want to arrest him, but then think about it and be like, no, he's doing good. He, I know he's trying to make up for all the terrible things that he, you know, for the death of my daughter, for all the things that his father has done. And, and like
0: kind of like come to a realization and then whoop, He's gone. Yeah, he's gonna die. Well, so it, it I reminds do... me of Captain Stacy and Amazing Spider-Man. Okay, I saw that over the summer. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you're right, and I I think that yeah, I think he's he's gonna die, but I think eventually he's going to come to Oliver's side. I think he's going to realize Oliver's trying to right the wrongs of his own life and the wrongs of his father or his father's company at least, and trying to. Um, you know, atone for those things. And he's going to see that and respect that. And I think he's going to see that most of the guys that Arrow goes up against don't die. I know he's killed a couple, but most of them end up in the hospital. We've heard that. that, Yes. And and we've seen that if he shoots them in the chest, it's usually on the right side of the chest. So he's not going for the heart. He's not trying to kill. He's definitely – Trying to injure or and just put him down with one arrow, but not to to kill. The only it, one,
0: the only guy he killed was that one guy who found out his identity.
1: Right, for sure, for sure. Right, yeah. we don't know of any other deaths. Right, we know that m- all the main bad guys have not been killed. We don't know about all the henchmen because <laughs> yes. a guy got shot off of a fourth story thing Duh. and fell. There's no way he survived that. Right, but it wasn't the arrow that killed him. It was the fall. So, you know, (laughs) technically he killed him, but not really, you know? So it's, it's that, it's that fine line of who's, who's to blame.
0: And I think the show's going to deal with that as well. I think so. And uh, the other thing about the guy that plays um, Laurel's father, the detective Lance, he's an actor that's like John Barrowman who has that big following over in Britain. So they, I mean, they didn't go with cheap actors, for him either for that role either. So I think he's going to get more likable as this show goes on.
1: Right. I mean, they, he's definitely a recognizable face and yeah. a lot of people are fans of him. And I think he's doing a, an admirable, admirable job playing a difficult role.
0: Cause yes.
1: it's tough to be tough to be the good guy that hates the other good guy.
0: Great. I, I think the role is being played just fine. That's where I am. Yeah. So, Michael, if you guys have a rebuttal for that, we would love to hear it. So, but Yeah, then... and I
1: can't, I can't wait to hear Michael and Moose's thoughts on Episode 2. I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to getting a chance to listen to that podcast. I'm really enjoying yeah. the Arrow show and the Longbow Hunters podcast.
0: Okay, I think Episode 2 has just recently come out. So mm-hmm. check that out, you guys. And with that, we're going to move on to Thursday. Um, we're going to talk about a new show that I'm bringing in to our slate of reviews, or I guess our rundown. And that shows the Vampire Diaries, which actually has gotten quite a bit of critical acclaim, especially from the magazine Entertainment Weekly. So I'm going to bring this in here. We have a friend of the podcast that eventually is going to get on a part of our show to talk Vampire Diaries and actually do this section for us. Um, That's a work in progress right now. But she wanted me to go ahead and say something about this first episode um, until we can get that all figured out. So I'm going to talk about the first episode here um, with the Vampire Diaries episode. Memorial. Elena struggles to cope with the emotional swings as she becomes a vampire. Stefan and Damon nearly come to blows while arguing about what is best for her. This show runs on the concept of a vampire's emotions being heightened. And with this show's main character, Elena, now accidentally becoming a vampire, the emotions of everything going on with this show has been heightened. And with this show being a CW show, you're thinking probably they're going with more sex. But believe it or not, Galena being a vampire has put the conflict between the vampire brothers, Stefan and Damon, to the forefront. And thanks to the presence of a great actor like Ian Somerhalder, who plays Damon, these guys working out their brotherly frustrations is beginning to rival Sam and Dean Winchester during the first five seasons of Supernatural on the entertainment scale. Also, this episode deserves major props for having what I thought was the best action scene of the week, even over Arrow and that disappointing train sequence on Revolution. I mean, we've all seen those TV episodes where a sniper is perched on a balcony, ready to take out a major character while giving a speech. Can normally the hero on the show steps in to save the day at the last second? Well, Vampire Diaries did something I've never seen before. As it weaved this episode's plot lines together in a way that the sniper taking the big shot to shoot the major character connected to all of the characters on the series, with them all having something to lose if they went to go and stop him. As a result of the writers forming this situation, they set up the best excuse for a character to do something incredibly unexpected that I've seen in a very long time. Yes, I know this is supposed to be a teeny bopper show about vampires on the CW network that I'm praising, but this scene was so good, the episode earned the number one spot on Entertainment Weekly's must-watch list for the week, meaning that if you're an aspiring writer or just simply love storytelling... I'm serious. Check out this episode of The Vampire Diaries for a great example Got how-to-do edge-of-your-seat television. Yes, I feel like there's something wrong with me saying that, but this was a great scene, and really, I mean, this show, for what it is, is actually pretty well-written. So with that, I think uh, we're moving on to the closing, right, Nico?
1: Yeah, Dan, yeah. I'm uh, I'm surprised at how much you praised that show, but you know you've been telling me for a while it's, that it is it's a lot better than I expect.
0: It is. It you know I thought it's going to be Twilight. I actually had to watch it for a class that I was taking about vampires. Um, it was kind of an example of one thing, and I was surprised. Now the first season is what you'd expect from a CW teenage show, but right. it's grown beyond that now, which is well, good.
1: Well, I'm glad that you and Dana will be covering that one because it would take a long time for me to get caught up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and I know you said you weren't into doing another show like this in a while because you've gotten tired of them. So, um, I don't know. Wait till you're in the mood for that sort of thing. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, as we
1: move into the closing, on next week's episode, we will be covering Once Upon a Time, the season finale of Alphas, Go On, Supernatural, Person of Interest, The Big Bang Theory, and The Return of Fringe. You may have noticed we're not covering Castle as it had the week off this week. We will also return with a more traditional Airwaves rundown section as I will be back home for all of next week's television and we'll be able to review all of it.
0: Yay. That's exciting. Can't wait. Also, I'd advise for you guys to check out our other spinoff podcasts. We've got ATA Retro Reviews, which is going to be on hiatus till December, and that covers past TV shows that have been canceled or went out on their own terms. Michael and we are putting this on hold due to their new show, Longbow Hunters, which we praised heavily in our Arrow section of this episode. So check that show out. ATA Longbow Hunters covers individual episodes of the new show that's been picked up for a full season, Arrow. So... Check that out to stay updated on that show. They got a great thing going on there, so check that out. We also have across the airwaves DC Nation podcast, which covers all the entertainment that DC Comics provides for its fans, including the TV shows Young Justice and Green Lantern, which are on hiatus till January. But for now, on DC Nation podcast, we are going to be doing uh, commentaries on all of the DC animated films that have been released, beginning with the great film. Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the theatrical movie that was based on the Batman animated series, TV series. So we're going to be talking about that on our next episode when we get that going. Can also, DC Nation Podcast reviews issues of Brian Q. Miller's Smallville Season 11. So check that out to stay updated on those shows. Also, if you'd like, uh, you can contact us with any of your thoughts on the shows that we cover or if you have any crackpot theories for future episodes, through visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can email us at at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Also, to get more of the news Nico provides for us every week, and also to stay updated on our podcast releases, you can like us on Facebook by just clicking the like button on our page. You can also follow us on Twitter, and our Twitter name is Across Airwaves. There's no the there, it's just Across Airwaves. And you can also get the same information by joining our circle on Google+. But for the best way to stay in touch with us through a social media network, please try to use Facebook and Twitter. You'll get answered much faster. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail with any of your crackpot theories for upcoming episodes. Or if you want to, just let us know we're doing a great job with their show. So what number can they call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363 Also advise to check out our YouTube channel which provides previews and promos for upcoming Across the Airwaves events and upcoming movies coming out, including the James Bond film Skyfall, and we'll also be putting out the trailer for Iron Man 3 on that page in the next couple of days. Also, on that page, you can check out all of the shorts that are shown during Cartoon Network's DC Nation programming talk. And if you don't want to go back to this podcast to listen to all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Android app. Get through that app. You can listen to all of our podcast episodes and stay in contact with our podcast all through your cellular phone. So definitely check that out if you want to do that. You can also, in the works, is a podcast box app which will allow you to do the same thing through your iPad and iPhone. So hopefully we'll get that released soon. So once again, for our ATA Arrow podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty and Woo Kim, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Resteck. And until our next episode, we will catch you on the airwaves. See you, everybody. Have a great week, and thanks for all the support for providing our Arrow show. We definitely appreciate it. See ya. I'm not afraid to